chapter 1 of Genesis, we uh, are telling the story of Adam, but there's just so much that we need to talk about around his story that um, I, I want to take the time to do that, and I don't want to get down too much into the weeds. Uh, we have an outline of the preparation for Adam, and we kind of got stuck on that last week. Uh, today, we will cover the area of the presentation of Adam, as well as the predicament of Adam, and you're going to have to wait until next week for the last installment, the peccability of Adam. Now, some might say, why did you make just one outline when you're spreading it out like this? Because I don't know when I start. And this is the flow of what the passages say, but there's just too much. So bear with us. Let's open in a word of prayer while we embark on this journey. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. Thank you for your word that opens up to us things that happened at a time that we would not even know about these things had you not revealed them to us in your word. And so we are very grateful. Father, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding that we might see new things from your word today, that we might be able to capture uh, some nuggets of truth that will impact our lives, that we will be different people uh, from those that walked in this morning. And Lord, uh, that's up to your Holy Spirit, but it's also up to us to have our hearts that are open and uh, ready to receive from you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' most precious name, amen. Well, last week, I just want to give a quick review. We, we talked about the preparation, and if you just kind of keep that thought in your mind, the preparation, and I, I, I said that Genesis is written in a historical narrative genre of, of literary uh, function. It's not poem, it's not poetic, and it's not metaphorical. It is literally historical narrative, And I said there's one way that you can see that very easily if you just take a look in your Bibles and you see in verse 3, mine has then, you might have and, uh, but it has then. And in verse 6, mine has then. And then in verse 9, then. And verse 11, then. And verse 14, then. And verse 20, then. And then verse 24, then. All of those are conjunctions. They're conjunctions called Avav consecutive. And what they are used for is any type of narrative to keep the story flowing. It, it says, this is the next thing that happened, and then this is the next thing that happened, and then this is the next thing that happened. So you have a flow to the story. It's very important. And what I wanted you to see is that if you look at verses 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24, they're all, resemp- uh, they're all represented by that little English word, than or and, and most of them correlate exactly with the six days of creation. And 2, 3 summarizes the seventh day because it's in chapter 2, verse 3, that little than again. And what we have here is we have form and filling. On the first day, God created light and darkness. And correlating to that, on day four, he created the light holders, if you will, the sun and the moon. On the second day, he created the sea and the sky. On the fifth day, he filled them with fish and birds. On the third day, he created the fertile earth. And on the sixth day, he filled it with land creatures and man. So we see him forming and then filling, forming and filling. And there's order to that. And he's preparing the earth for Adam. He's preparing the earth for Adam. And just as there was preparation where he formed and then filled, he's doing the same thing. He's preparing the earth for Adam to receive his regent. God revealed some interesting things. And we get a glimpse of the creator through his creation. Um, You can look at anything that is created by man and you can tell something about the person that created it. Uh, Back in the tribe, when we talk about this with the tribal people, of course, we used illustrations that were good for them that they could understand. And we said, if you have a spear that you're going to go pig hunting with and that spear is very straight, 
and the blade on it is just the right weight so it fits perfectly and weighs perfect in your hand. And when you throw it, 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 it throws true. You know that the man that created that spear is very diligent and he's done a beautiful job of it and that's the way that man does everything. His gardens are like that. It's just the way he operates. So you can tell something from the creator. If we look at, at something like, um, I don't want to pick on him, but I will, Larry. Okay, Pitkinen. He makes these pens. You can find out something about Larry by looking at the pens that he makes. And his son, Ian, makes mail. I'm talking about like knights in shining armor, mail. And one of those pieces of mail is hanging in uh, the Creation Museum, uh, the Ark experience. It's, it's in one of the displays there. And you can tell something about how fastidious Ian is by what he's created. Well, it's the same with God. And you, we need to understand that God is absolute. He is unconditioned by anything outside of himself. He's purely self-determined, independent. All of his acts have their origin within him alone. He's completely independent and free. And something that's so beautiful is all created forms of life become concrete expressions of definite thoughts of God. First there's thought, then there's a creation. And we see who God is through what he has created. And the universe becomes then a universal reflection of the majesty of the eternal in earthly matter. I credit Eric Sauer with that statement. Just a, he's thought about this. And it's encouraging for us to know. The Apostle Paul stated it like this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. We should be able to see the power of God, that God is almighty through the creation that we look at. You've been to the mountains. Rocky Mountains are one of my favorite places in all the earth. And uh, you see the majesty of God when you, you look at one of the mountains in the rocky chain. It's just magnificent. It makes you be quiet. He is a great God, and we can see that. And now God created man as the very crown, the pinnacle of creation. Why do I say that? Well, he was created at the end of the sixth day, so it was a terminus of his creative works. It was the end of his creative works. We read about the seventh day, and God rested from all his work. So the creation of man and woman was the end of his creative works. Therefore, man is also a crescendo of his creative work, because everything up to that point was preparatory for man. Everything God created before creating Adam was a, a preparation for the creation of humanity, the earth to walk upon, the air to breathe, the plants and food to eat, the sun, the moon, and stars for light and how we determine time. All was preparatory. And God placed Adam over his creation, saying, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is truly God's regent over the earth. Now, never mind that he forfeited that, and we'll talk about that at a later date, but he did. I provided a simple outline for you to follow along with me as we work through this amazing story of Adam. And it is his story, but there's so much peripheral that we have to just kind of get some of this together. And so we talked about that preparation first. Now we're going to talk about the presentation of Adam. And I want you to look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, there's that word again. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. Then 
God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the uh, surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the field, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. The preparation was all for man and the creation of God's crown of his creation. And his presentation is very interesting. Now, I want to tell you, Adam is a historical figure. He's not just a metaphor. He's not just some story to teach us another lesson. He is a person that's introduced to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And there are some who call themselves evangelicals who no longer believe him to be a real historical person. They've been swayed by so-called science, which always gets disproved when they go against the word of God. It always does. It may take some time, but it always does. But there are a number of reasons to take Adam, just as he's presented in Genesis 1 and 2 as a historical figure, and I want to provide you with just nine reasons. So this is important because you might be in a secular workplace and you might mention, Anne, I heard her pastor talk about Adam and Eve this week, and it was awesome. I hope you say that. I pray every Sunday that the, the, the sermon that I preach is the best sermon I've ever preached. I really do. And so you might say that and the person will scoff at you and say, oh, it's just a bunch of fairy tales. Well, listen to these uh, examples. Number one, the Bible does not divide between history and theology. And although Genesis is not to be taken like a history book, it's not a textbook, it does indeed record real history with theology woven throughout. Okay? The theology just comes in and out of the historical presentation of these facts. Number two, Moses' record. You remember Moses is writing this, okay, long after it took place. This is after the exodus out of Egypt. And he's writing it for Israel, the nation, because he's helping them to understand their heritage and their origins. So Moses' record of creation was an apologetic against the multitude of creation myths promoted by the many polytheistic nations that surrounded Israel. He wanted them to know the real deal. And the Genesis account starts before any of those other creation stories begin. Before the beginning, before the beginning of all things, before the beginning of the creation of the universe, God was already present. All the myths, the creation myths, all start with something already in place, but not Moses' account, which you receive from God. Number three, the creation story in Genesis is written in a genre known as historical narrative style. It is not poetry. Some really educated men proclaim the Genesis account all the way through chapter 11 is kind of poetic. You want poetry, go to Psalm 104, a call to worship. That shows the creation story in poetic form. And compare Psalm 104 with Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll see, oh, this is much more stiff, if you will. It's, it's much more historical, if you will. It's not lyrical, although there's some beautiful passages in here. And of course, when you get to chapter 2, and the man says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That kind of borders on poetry. It's beautiful. And when you hear the back story to that, you'll see it as being even more beautiful. We'll get to that today. So it's not poetry. It's historical narrative. Number four, when Genesis 1 through 11 is studied, there is an ongoing narrative from the generation of Adam all the way to Abraham. History does not begin in Genesis 12 with Abraham, and then Genesis 1 through 11 is to be taken as prehistory. There are teachers that teach that. That is not true. That's not true. 
Number five, there are biblical genealogies outside of Genesis which present Adam as a historical figure. First Chronicles chapter 1 is one, as well as Luke chapter 3. They talk about Adam as a historical figure with other historical figures in the genealogy. They don't separate him out as some type of a metaphor. Not to mention Jesus' affirmation of Adam as a historical figure in Mark 10, 6, and how he referred to Adam to affirm the institution of marriage in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he quotes that verse that I quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother. Paul, number 6, Paul affirmed Adam as a historic figure in Romans 5, 12 through 21, and it explains where sin and death came from in this earth. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, and 45 through 45. I don't know when I'm going to get to that. I mean, I could preach weeks just on 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. And the comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam. Never say the second Adam. It's the second man. The first man and the second man, but it's the first Adam and the last Adam. Comparing Jesus Christ with Adam. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, the second Adam. Now, Number seven, if we do not possess a common ancestry with Adam, there's no foundation for human dignity because we came about by some other way. Chance, random, happening, whatever you want to say. Ooze, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a, little, a little piece of stardust floated down to earth and there was DNA on it and that's how we got our start. Some scientists tell us that. People... If that's what you believe, there is no dignity for humanity. We're created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Every human being has value. And there's human equality regardless of skin color or cultural background. There is a gender distinction, yet gender equality as both have been created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. There is so much tied up in these verses that when you throw them out, You're cutting your nose off to spite your face. And we can see what has happened in our own culture by laying aside the word of God and Xing God out of our public education systems and the public square. It's mayhem and chaos and violence everywhere. Number eight, if Genesis is not actual history, there's no foundation for the doctrine of original sin and human depravity, so blatantly obvious everywhere we look. It explains what happened. Number nine, possibly the most vital reason of all to see Genesis as an actual history and Adam as a historic figure is the fact that Paul's doctrine of the last Adam, which I just talked to you, the second man, is based upon comparison between Adam, the first man, and Jesus Christ, as seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. All are dead in trespasses and sins in Adam. But in the last Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ, there is life, life eternal. These are glorious truths, people. And when we throw the Bible out in the first chapters as being other than historical narrative, we get into deep trouble. Genesis 26 through 28 tells us that man was created both special and personal. Special and personal. There's both the crescendo of all creation, as I mentioned, and a terminus in another sense. There's there's more space given to the description of Adam in creation than any other facet of God's creation. When you look at all the verses in verses one and or chapters one and two, there is more time taken to talk about Adam and the creation of Adam and Eve than any other facet of God's creation. There's, there's a change in the language that takes place. Uh, right up to verse 26, it says over and over again, let there be, and it was. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be swarms of, and there are swarms of animals. In verse 26, he says, not let there be, but let us make. Let us make. That marks 
a definitive break with the narrative thus far. It's different. He's doing something different, and it all has to do with the creation of Adam and Eve. And incidentally, the name Yahweh is introduced in 2.7, a name that denotes God as a personal God and in relationship with man. Then the Lord, and wherever you see Lord in the Old Testament, in all small caps, that really should be translated not Jehovah, but Yahweh, Yahweh. So that verse actually says, then Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim formed man from the dust of the ground. Man was created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. He says, let us make man. And here the Trinity consulted among themselves, determining to make man in a different way than the rest of the creation thus far. It's clear teaching that the scriptures, that humanity did not come into existence by random accident. God intended to create mankind. Isaiah 45, 18 says he formed the earth to be inhabited. Uh, When I was younger, there was a song, all we are dust. We're just dust. Kind of like Carl Sagan with we're angel dust, you know, we're, we're star dust or whatever. What that leads to is complete nihilism because there's no purpose for life. There's no meaning. And what it does in a person, a young person's thinking is, if I'm just dust or if I'm just a biological blob and there's no meaning to my existence, then I can do whatever I want. It just doesn't work out, people. It's important to understand that God did not create mankind because he had any kind of a need for love or companionship or worship. We said the triune God is completely sufficient within themselves. They had communication. They have love being shown to each other before the foundation of the world, before we were ever created. They did not need us, but we need them. He says, in our image, mankind holds a unique place in God's creative order precisely because God made him in his own image. And every time I say man, just think Adam. It's the same word. Adam is the Hebrew, and we get Adam from that, and it means man. This means that God made man with a remarkable ability to reflect various aspects of his own nature. Remember I said, everything that we see in creation is a reflection of the thoughts of God with matter attached to it. Humanity is absolutely distinct from the animal in this regard because we're in the image of God. Now, what is the Imago Dei and and, and what are the implications of the image of God? God's image in man is indicated at least by four capacities that Adam possessed, different from the animals. Personality, morality, spirituality, and physicality. Okay? Personality, morality, spirituality, and physicality. And they were played out in the garden. We can trace this, and we will in a moment. They're played out in the garden, but they're played out in our lives every single day that we live. These four capacities that we have as human beings. The first is personality. Adam was created with the ability to know, feel, and exercise his own will, volition. With his mind, Adam was able to think abstractly, to reason, and he possessed a sense of self-awareness, creation awareness, and probably most importantly of all, God awareness. Animals are not aware of God. He could know God, unlike any of the animals that God had created. Man is the crown of God's creation. Morality, with the capacity to know He was also endowed with emotions. Adam could sense God's love towards him. And he could love God back. And after Eve was created, he was able to express love toward her. And with the capacity of feeling came freedom and responsibility. Not complete, unrestrained freedom, because only God possesses such freedom. Although I tried for three years to exercise total freedom, let me tell you, You want to run up against a brick wall, try it. Try it. That was prior to my salvation. And at the end of that three-year period, I felt like Nebuchadnezzar and he released me from myself and saved me. God possesses such freedom unhindered by any outside influence whatsoever. Not so us. 
Adam and Eve would acknowledge that freedom by choosing to obey God's single command. You can eat freely from all the trees in the garden, but this one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it because the day that you eat of it, in that day you will surely die. The one mandate that God gives. And, and, and they would exercise that freedom to choose and the responsibility that they had by choosing properly. Adam and Eve would acknowledge that freedom in choosing to obey God's single command. And their choice was a moral responsibility, whether pre or post-fall, when people, God's creation, created in his image, violate God-given freedoms, it's a moral violation. The Bible calls sin. Sin. And Adam and Eve, as well as every human being, knows when they have committed sin against God's ways. We do. But we suppress truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because we like the sin. We like our autonomy or our supposed or thinking that we're autonomous, that we don't have anybody over us. So you've got personality and morality, spirituality. How, how is that image of God reflected spiritually? Well, we're told that God is spirit. So it stands to reason that if Adam was created in the image of God, Adam would be a spiritual being as well as a physical being. And this is one more declaration of the uniqueness of humanity in comparison to the animal kingdom. Only man possesses a spirit. Animals do not. If we understand spirit to mean the capacity to relate to God, who is spirit. Uh, animals are said to have a roh, the breath of God. But the truth of the matter is, not in the same way that man has a spirit. Eve was made in the image of man. I want you to listen to this. Eve was made in the image of man. She was taken out of the man and made in the image of man. And Adam saw himself in her and he loved Eve. So much so that he said, when God brought him to her, this, this now, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. They're united. They're, 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 they're inseparable. They're similar yet different. So God, making man in his image, also sees himself in us, and he loves us. He made him, male and female, he made them, and he loves his creation. So men and women are to God somewhat as the woman is to the man. We need to go no further than the comparative relationship of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. These, these themes are overlaid throughout the scriptures, reinforcing the truth. Man is special. God loves his creation, so much so that he sent his only begotten son to die, to save them. So we've got personality, morality, spirituality, and now physicality. God's image in some way reflected in man as only man stands upright and erect. His gaze is heavenward, looking outward and upward, and his face is able to display what he is feeling with all the emotions which God had endowed him with. Now, I know my poodle, I know when he's smiling. It's true. And I know when he's mad because he, you know, when I bother him, which I do because it's fun. So he can express those kind of emotions. But look at the the. The, the multitude of emotions that we can express with our faces, our countenance. It's amazing. We're able to display what we feel with all the emotions which God has endowed us with. Our tongue is able to articulate our thoughts, our emotions, and our will. And, and, and we can use it to speak symbolically and in metaphors, that is abstractly. And man's physicality reaches its crescendo in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The father prepared a human body for his son. You, you've got to think God was thinking ahead when he created Adam to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10.5, 
We have the son quoting Psalm 40, which I read to you. A body you have prepared for me, he says. A body you have prepared for me. And Adam again, or and again in 1.3, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of Yahweh's nature. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. The physicality of the first man was a God-chosen image of himself and of which only in the fullness of time to be revealed in the form in which Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, finally appeared among men. This is amazing stuff, people. And our bodies will be transformed either in the rapture or at the time of Christ's second coming. Our bodies, Jesus Christ is in his glorified body presently seated at the right hand of the Father. Our bodies are important. Don't abuse them. Don't abuse them. So in summary then, man being made in the image of God means in some way that Adam had cacti characteristics of God being made a little lower than the angels. We read God crowned Adam for a little while lower than the angels and God crowned Adam with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of his hands as his regent. Amazingly, because God created him in his own image, in some way he's like God. We are like God in some way very much unlike God in many other ways. People have a rational nature with the capacity to reason. We have intelligence. We're able to decide. We have volition and to express feelings of emotion. And therefore, we can know God and we can obey him and choose to obey him and we can love and worship him, which is the expression of affection. Like God, people have a moral nature, which means we know right from wrong and good from evil. And these, at least, are ways that we reflect God through the Imago Dei. It's beautiful. And therefore, every person possesses inherent dignity. And that's why we don't murder one another. That's why we don't kill our babies. Because we have been created in the image of God. Male and female created he them. What an incredible heritage. We've been gifted by God to have been created in his own image. What a responsibility to reflect that image and in that way glorify him. And and understanding demands this and, and love motivates it and obedience reflects it. And again, there you've got the three things. To know God, we have a mind. To obey God, we have will. And to love God. We have emotion and affection. Well, that is the presentation of Adam. And now I want to look at the predicament of Adam. And you say, well, that's odd. What are you talking about predicament? What kind of predicament could you talk about? Well, let's take a look at it. Uh, We see in this passage, the very first passage. Now, let's just turn, turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 2, and, and, and might I just say, you know, Genesis 2, some people believe that Genesis 2 is like a second creation account. No, 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 no. There's one creation account. Genesis 1 gives us the general outline of the creation, the six days of creation. Genesis 2 goes into further depth and especially focuses on the creation of the man and the woman. It's one story, okay, it's just explained a little bit more. But look at verse 15, and we'll pick it up there, Genesis 2.15, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 25. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, 
The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all of the cattle and to all the birds and, uh, of the sky and to every beast of the field. But, contrastive, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said when he saw her, or Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Oh, I love this passage. Oh, Lord, help me. First thing we see is work is not bad. In verse 15, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It's not bad. And when he says he is to rule over it and subdue the earth, it's talking about stewardship. Some today in the ecological world would say that man is destroying the world because God told him in the creation mandate to subdue the world, and so he's just destroying it. I like what John MacArthur says. If you think we're destroying the world, wait till you see what Jesus does with it in the tribulation. <laughs> Amen, John. Unlike drudgery, creative service reflects the image of God. It's another distinguishing feature that separates humans from animals. It's only after sin that work is accomplished through strain and sweat and accompanied by thorn and thistle. Work is not bad. And here's the first predicament I want to expose to you in verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, we see God say, it's not good for man to be alone. This is a predicament. Here he is alone. And it's important that God meet that need. Prior to that, verses 16 and 17, I got ahead of myself because I'm racing to get done. Verses 16 and 17, the first predicament is the fact that he said, you shall surely eat of every tree. It's okay, but the one you can't eat of That is a predicament for him because he's got a mandate now. He's got a command from God. God has authority to command people he has made. And did you notice that it says that God took the man and placed him in the garden? Maybe that's lost in you. He didn't debate with Adam. Hey, Adam, what do you think? Would you like to go to this really cool place that I created for you? He just took him. Sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty over his creation, Adam. And Adam just submitted to it. But then he gets there and he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge good and evil you should not eat. So he had freedom, but it was with this restriction. Adam certainly should have received God's word joyfully, knowing that he could trust God's righteous character and his knowledge of what would be best, but we know that he did not do that. And we'll get to that next week with the peccability of Adam. With the command came that warning, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Once God revealed his will, Adam's choice became a moral one, a choice between right and wrong. You see, the consequence of Adam's choice would become a matter of life and death, both physically and spiritually. And then on to all of us. The predicament of Adam being alone First, he's got this predicament with this this command. That's kind of a new feature here in the story. And then he's got this predicament. He's alone. And I love this, verses 18 through 25. At the end of the chapter 1, we read, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And then we see in 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Amazing. Amazing. Yahweh took Adam. And he said, it's not good for you to be alone. And it's so interesting because God was the one 
that identified Adam's need. He didn't know he had that need. God first sees Adam's need, and then what does he do? He, he prepares. He prepares Adam for Eve by bringing all the animals before Adam, and Adam names all the animals, and at the end of his naming all the animals, there wasn't a companion that was suitable that was found for Adam. And Adam became distinctly aware of his need, and God, by doing that, created a desire within Adam. And then God met it. (laughs) Is God a loving God? Or what? Why is it so easy for us to forget that God loves us? When we have a need in our life, we, we work overtime to meet that need. And after we fail repeatedly, we finally turn to God in prayer and say, help! And he just says, okay. And he helps us. I don't know if that's been your experience. It's been my experience. More than I care to, to offer to you. You see, God saw Adam's need and immediately set out to do it and meet that need. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. So what's he going to do? I will make him a helper suitable for him. Sees the need, immediately goes in to meet the need, but he doesn't do it right off the bat. First, he shows Adam his need so Adam understands it himself. He calls out to us, God does. He wants us to understand our need for him especially when we're experiencing anxiety and fear and he encourages us to cast all of our anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for us. That is so hard for us to get our arms around that he actually cares for you. You. Not man generally. Individuals. Adam was an individual and God met his need and he will meet your need. Whatever that need is, people, he loves you. And God's solution was that he, Yahweh Elohim, caused Adam to go into a deep sleep and then he made a helper suitable for Adam. He made Adam's companion. He identified the need. He showed Adam his need. And then he met the need by making a woman from the rib of Adam. Why from the side of Adam? Why from his rib? I've looked high and low. That, That word for rib is selah. And it's, 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 it's translated, well, it's used 35 times in the Old Testament and almost all the other uses are side, the side, the side. And here it's the rib. And I, I, why, why did the translators put rib there? Well, the best I can surmise is what other commentators have suggested, and that is just as the rib is found at the side of man and is attached to him, even so the wife built from the rib of her husband, is to be found at his side and to be counterpart, a helper suitable to him, and her soul is bound up with him. And there we drop into a little bit of metaphor, a little bit of poetry maybe. And after Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, made Adam's companion, who is suitable for him, God again acts. God is singular in his actions here monergistic, he does it all by himself. He brings the woman to Adam. Adam didn't need to go out and search for her. He didn't need to fret over where he might find such a one. He didn't have to go on the dating app online. They didn't have them then. God in his infinite love saw the need, met the need, and then brought her to him. He did all the work. Everything. And Adam's response was nothing short of ecstatic. His jubilant response is seen in the nuance of exclamation in the Hebrew and carried by the English translation of this. He says, it's in contrast to the naming of all the animals because he still remembered that before he went to sleep. And he looks at this woman now that God brought to him and he says, this, this one is the one. She's here. This is suitable to me. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's wonderfully compatible with him. And the Hebrew term neged, 
translated as suitable or fit, literally means that which is in front of or opposite of as according to his opposite. It's his counterpart, his compatible one that he didn't find in all the animals. And she perfectly corresponded to Adam physically, socially, and spiritually because she was another one like Adam. She could talk. She could show expression of emotion. And she could choose. She had volition. I like the paraphrase, the creation of woman, like this. She was a perfect fit. That's my paraphrase of the Hebrew. She was a perfect fit. Now, I would love to go into all sorts of excursions on Adam and what kind of a man he must have been as the first human being, unmarred by sin, the intelligence, his physicality. I mean, he had to be good looking, right? He's the first man created by God after his image. And then Eve, you have the same thing. You just can't imagine in their pristine innocence what they must have been like. And they had one another. Alan Ross is a commentator on Genesis, and he provides a fitting summary that ties this all back to the primary interpretation historically with the authorial intent. What did Moses mean by translating this and putting this down? Yes, I know God related it to Moses, and Moses wrote it down, but why? Well, Moses relayed through this portion of Scripture how God prepared humans with a specific design and moral capacity. He's talking to these people that were in Egypt with the false gods of the Egyptians. And he said, God prepared humans with a specific design and moral capacity. God set them in a luxuriant land, kind of what, like what he's going to do with Israel, bringing them into the land of Canaan the land that flows with milk and honey. And, and, and God set Adam and Eve in this garden to be his servants, warning them before them was life or death. Kind of like Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. If you listen to my commands and obey them, you will live. But if you do not listen to my commands and obey them, there is consequences. Depending on their obedience to his commands, they would have a result, and how God gave them the community of marriage for their joy and help. How beautiful. And how linked to the historical situation that Israel found themselves in now with their charter of who they are as a people. Verses 24 and 25, what else would happen? Adam gets married. We're moving towards the end of his story, at least his presentation, and we'll move into his peccability. He gets married. It just says there, for this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, remember that Moses is talking to Israel as a nation as they're going to go into Canaan, the new land that God has prepared for them, and he's telling them marriage is an institution instituted by God for your joy but to bring glory to me. It's a fabric of society. It's important. It's what we'd expect. And God gave them the institution of marriage for their joy and for their help, to help each other. And in their innocence, they were completely at peace with their creator, their environment, which was paradise, and with one another. And so this motif closes with the simple and beautiful words, and the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. There was no guilt, no fear, no shame for all that takes place, all this takes place before sin entered the world. What an idyllic place. The fact of the matter is, people, I I just heard this thought in our class on parenting this morning. Some parents think if they just create the right environment, the kid will turn out good and he'll be okay or she'll be okay. How about paradise? How about no sin or anything, right? You've maybe heard me talk about the French man that I talked to on a plane as we were landing in Tirana, Albania. And I asked him what he was doing, and he said, well, I'm an economist. I'm going over to Albania to help 
that society get over their troubles. I said, well, how do you propose to do that? And he said, well, I'm going to help them to understand economics, and if they have enough money to live, they'll be okay, and, and, and away will go prostitution, and away will go murder and mayhem and so forth and so on. I said, and you're from France, right? And he said, yes, I'm a Frenchman. I said, how's that working in France? He turned to the window and didn't talk to me the rest of the time. And I was shut down. But it's people... Why do they think these things? The environment was perfect for Adam and Eve. Now, we're at the end of the story of Adam, except for his last predicament, which is his peccability. But there, there's a part of the story that I told today that's just kind of left hanging. The tension still lingers as the listener is left without resolution to something introduced in the story, but left undealt with. Back in 2.17, it says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. The introduction of such a solemn warning is suspended in the balance. And we'll deal with that issue next week with the peccability of Adam. And it starts in verse 1 of chapter 3. And lo and behold, there's that little... Vav consecutive again, this time translated in my New American Standard with the word now. You might have and or them. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field. So come back next week and we'll complete our story of Adam. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for these stories that are so jam-packed. There's so much information communicated here and it's not just because we have vivid imaginations and we're making up all this stuff as we go the information is there intricately designed in the narrative for us to grasp and when we think of this uh, was given by Moses to the new nation Israel and all the implications that had so that they knew their origin, that they were unlike any of the other nations around them because they had one God, monotheistic, not like the polytheistic nations around them. And that that God loved them with an incredible love because he created them. Oh God, let these things grip our hearts. Let's get a new vision of God, a new view of who he is. He is not an ogre just waiting to punish us. He loves us deeply, and he desires to bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.